So, back in March, I was telling the guys that uh, we may need a little break from teaching our catechism, but usually we have a 20-minute catechism lesson during the service, but we haven't done it since March. But I did not intend for that break to go three months long. So, of course, Amanda had her uh, medical emergency at the end of March, well into April, which accounts for most of it. Now our pastor's out with some illnesses, and that's going on a little bit longer than we anticipated. So we're rotating in and out, the three of us, and today was my turn, and so I thought I'd use this opportunity to get that study back up and going today. So today, <clears throat> I want to pick up from where we left off back in March with our introduction to systematic theology. And then next Lord's Day, Lord willing, Pastor JP is going to be preaching on something, whatever he's choosing to preach on, and then we'll start our 20-minute uh, lesson back up and pick up from today. So with that said, where were we back in March? Well, if you remember, after spending some time going through each of the Ten Commandments, wherein God summarizes his moral law, we had asked the question, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for our sin? And there are three parts to that answer. God requires, one, faith in Jesus Christ, two, repentance unto life, and then thirdly, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And we had already looked at faith, we had already looked at repentance earlier in this series. And so we then jump to the topic of God's outward means of grace. And then we ask this question, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And that answer had three parts. These outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Well, then we spend a little time looking at how to use the word in our lives, and then after this part, we'll go on to consider prayer. But sandwiched in between the word and prayer are the sacraments. And so what I want to do today, and perhaps two more catechism lessons, is to consider this very important topic of the sacraments. If our diligent use of the sacraments is a means whereby we escape the wrath and curse of God, see our catechisms, then obviously we would want to know what those sacraments are, how to, they are to be observed, and what role they play in salvation. But before we spend any time on any one particular sacrament, and spoil alert, there's only two, we first want to consider just what exactly is a sacrament. Now, as I've shared this story before, back around 2012, which was two years after I came out of the heresy of hyperpreterism, and our family had just moved down here, I had made a comment on Facebook that I was leaving behind some of my Baptist convictions, which I held for about 18 years. And I was leaving it for a more historic confessional reform theology. Well, as you might imagine, this led a few of my Baptist friends freaking out, uh, especially on Facebook, as you can imagine. The comments just started flying. And somewhere in all of that conversation, I had used the word sacrament. 
And two of my friends in particular then went on this rant against the word sacrament. I was told that the Bible doesn't teach about sacraments, rather it teaches us about ordinances. I was also told that the phraseology of sacrament is a Roman Catholic thing, hangover. And I have found throughout the years is that, that this is a very common thought among Baptists. Now, while it is true that there, are, there were a few early Baptists who did use the word sacrament, that word is generally not used by Baptists. And if you want just a prime example of this, just look at the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. After our confession, which is the Westminster, was written, there were some English independents and Congregationalists who took that confession as a template and made their own confession so that they wanted, quote, a declaration of the faith and order owned and practiced in the Congregational churches in England. And so they made some changes to reflect their understanding of church government. Then the particular Baptists of England then took that revision and made their own revision to reflect their Baptist theology. And so when it's all said and done, the London Baptist Confession of Faith is in big part a word-for-word -word copy of the Savoy, which in turn is a, uh, mirrors much of our confession. But of course, the Baptists tweaked it in those places where they differed. In some cases, there was entire removal of some paragraphs or addition and a rewording of a few things here and there. Well, I say all that to point out that our confession uses the word sacrament 26 times. It even has a chapter called Of the Sacraments. Now, there are a few places where the Savoy doesn't use the word sacrament, where the Westminster does, but they never drop the word completely. They still use it quite a bit. On the other hand, if you read the Baptist Confession, it doesn't use the word sacrament one time. In fact, they even reworded that chapter of the sacraments, a quote of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then when they speak of the sacraments collectively, they use the word ordinance instead of sacrament. Now, this obvious and intentional denial of this word certainly raises some questions some eyebrows. Why would they drop this word out completely? Now, again, to be fair, there are a few Baptists that still use the word. But I think it's a safe bet to say that the vast majority do not. And the Baptist Confession of 1689 dropped it out completely, as we pointed out. So, what exactly, then, is a sacrament? And what makes a sacrament different from an ordinance? Well, first, let's consider the word sacrament itself. Let's just look at the word. Francis Turin gives us some insight here. He says, it is well known that sacramentum comes from sacrando, which means to consecrate or to initiate. With the ancient authors of the Latin language, it signifies two things. One, the money or the pledge deposited by two parties to a suit with the pontiff in a sacred place with which he was mulcted, that is, penalized, who had lost his cause as a punishment of an unjust litigation. And secondly, it meant an oath which was taken only when some sacred deity was invoked. It means to affirm by a solemn oath. But it is used peculiarly to denote a military oath by which soldiers bound themselves by a certain right and prescribe words to the state and the magistrate that they would strenuously perform what the emperor had commanded and would not desert the military standards. Hence, the old glosses, in the old glosses, sacramentum is a military oath. 
Tertullian wrote, we are called to the militia of God even then when we responded to the words of the sacrament. Tertullian uh, goes on, the word having been transferred from military affairs to sacred uses was employed by ecclesiastical writers to signify any mystery or sacred and not obvious doctrine. Hence, when you read the fathers, you'll find the sacrament of the Trinity, of the incarnation, and of faith in general. The whole Christian religion comes under this name. In this sense, the word is used in the Vulgate where the word mystery occurs. And that's the end of Turin's quote. And so you see in the medieval church, the Latin word sacramentum, when it car uh, which carried with it this idea of a pledge, a solemn oath, was the word they used to translate the Greek word mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. And this is how they designated baptism and the Lord's Supper, with this word. In other words, the early church fathers intentionally assigned a word to baptism and to the Lord's Supper that not only revealed this idea of a pledge or an oath, but also conveys this idea of mystery. The late Reformed Presbyterian Robert Raymond, who was actually not fond of the word sacrament, notes in his Systematic Theology that, quote, the two simplest and most generally accepted definitions of the word sacrament are the one by Augustine and the other by Peter Lombard. Augustine, who was the Bishop of Hippo, and he died in 430, defined a sacrament as a sacred sign, while Peter Lombard, who died in 1164, defined a sacrament as, quote, a visible form of an invisible grace and, quote, a sign of the grace of God in the form and cause of an invisible grace. And so in answering the question, what is the sacrament, our shorter catechism answers, it is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers, unquote. Now, I want you to notice some things in this definition. <clears throat> We're not opposed to the word ordinance, which is the word the Baptists like to use. Here, it, we explicitly call baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinances. An ordinance is just an authoritative command. It's an order, a rite. We have no problem at all referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper as rites that have been instituted by Christ. We are commanded by God to practice these rites in the church. Notice the catechism's phrasing. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ. We baptize and we partake of the supper because Christ, who is the head of the church, demands this of us. And I would even go so far to say that if we neglect these things, we neglect them to the danger of our own soul. A person who willingly disobeys these commands and perseveres in that disobedience is in danger of destroying his soul. Not because of any lack of the sacraments per se, but because an impenitent state of a soul that's living in constant willful disobedience to the commands of God reveals a true, the true state of that soul. A person's living in unbelief, disobedience. So yes, these are ordinances. And we do not make light of this fact. Ronald Wallace writes, quote, God commands the use of the sacraments. He would command nothing that was superfluous or vain. 
Therefore, the sacraments are necessary. God has promised his grace along with the use of the sacraments. No man dare neglect the offered grace of God without condemnation. And so for us, then, it's, it's not an either-or. It's not sacrament or ordinance. It's both. A sacrament is an ordinance. But it's more than just an ordinance. And that something more is reflected in our use of the word sacrament. As we have already noted, the word sacrament conveys not only the idea of a pledge or an oath, but also the idea of mystery. There is something mysterious going on with baptism in the Lord's Supper. There is something about the nature of baptism in the Lord's Supper that goes beyond merely the fact that these are rites that God commands men to perform. Notice what the Catechism goes on to say. A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, and this is where the rub comes, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are not just represented, the Baptists will say that, but also sealed and applied to believers. Know here that Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are actually sealed and applied to believers, which is an act of God. And that which is sealed and applied is then represented in the sacraments by signs. The signs are not the substance. They are pointing you to the substance. And see, so here's the difference between a mere ordinance and a sacrament. When viewed as sacramental, baptism and the Lord's Supper are more than just acts of men. These are the very means by which God actually conveys grace to the recipient. There is something that God is actually doing to you and for you. And it is that spiritual reality that is in turn symbolized by the elements of water, bread, and wine, and by our actions with these elements. And so a sacrament is a visible sign of a spiritual blessing of salvation. This is, by the way, why we talk about means of grace. All of God's ordinances, but especially the word, prayer, and the sacraments, are God-ordained aids to faith. These external and ordinary means are the instruments that God has provided for us to use diligently, through which he actually brings the benefit of salvation into our lives. And as we use these means of grace, God, when pleased, uses them to work grace in our hearts. See, when you view baptism in the Lord's Supper as merely ordinances, all you're really doing is just commemorating something. That's it. God plays no role in any acts. These acts are seen as merely external acts by a man performed on a man to testify of something that God has done in the past. That's it. But the difference in our terminology signals an underlying difference in our theology. If you call it a sacrament, you're confessing it to be an act done by God through his church in which God actually confers something on those who participate. If you call it merely an ordinance, you're confessing it to be an act done by you, the, the participant, as a statement of your faith in the case of baptism or just as the memorial of Christ's death in the case of the Lord's Supper. Now keep in mind, there is some overlap in our positions as historical Reformed Christians, we don't object to calling the sacraments ordinances, as I already pointed out. There is a sense in which our baptism does make a statement. There is a commemorative aspect to the Lord's Supper as well. 
But those who object to the word sacrament do so because they do not believe that God is acting in these ordinances in applying actual grace to the participant. In the Baptistic view, which is by and large the majority of you, Protestant churches today, the sacraments have no real power. They're just merely memorials, object lessons of, of some sort, which teach us something about God. But, as I'm pointing out here, our position goes further. David Heddle writes, when reduced to merely an ordinance, baptism and communion are no longer about what God does, but what man does. There is nothing supernatural occurring, as if the supernatural realm were off limits to the creator of the universe. God merely observes as we commemorate his work. An ordinance is actor-centered, unquote. But beloved, in our understanding, there is a real and effectual promise that's attached to these ordinances when administered and received properly. There is actually something conveyed to the participant by an act of God alone. And it's our use of the word sacrament that alludes to this mysterious act that God performs. Faith and repentance are wrought in the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit and are therefore properly called internal or inward means of grace and salvation. The external or outward means are ordinances that are instituted by God which he commands us to use diligently with the confident hope of continuing to receive God's saving grace and the benefits of salvation. And as we use these means of grace, such as reading the Bible, listening to the word preached, praying, worshiping, and using the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we are to be praying earnestly that God would work grace in our hearts through them. And their power to bring God's grace to us is not in the means themselves, but in the sovereign pleasure of God. These means of grace are not only Christian duties performed in obedience to God, but they are also promises from God by which he assures his people of his presence and of his blessing. By them, God encourages his people to observe them diligently in the hope and faith that through them, God will bring his presence and blessings into their lives. God works the benefits of salvation by grace into the heart of the believer. He makes them effectual for their salvation, to borrow the wording of our larger catechism. This is what Peter was getting at, for example, when he wrote, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Well, that's, that's confused a lot of people. Baptism now saves you? How does that mean? Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Beloved, Peter was not attributing saving power to water from baptism. Nor was he even necessarily saying that water baptism is an absolute prerequisite of salvation. Think of the thief on the cross. Rather, he was saying that by the sacrament of baptism, the resurrected Christ continues to administer and convey the blessings of salvation into the lives of people, which blessings are theirs by grace through faith in Christ alone. And it's in that water baptism that that is signified and sealed. So do you see the difference? You've got to put on your thinking cap today. This, trust me, this was not easy. Now you see why I needed some break. 
in the baptistic sense of an ordinance, as I said, there is nothing that God is conveying to you in the acts of baptism in the Lord's Supper. They are signs of something, but they are not viewed as seals in the actual application of some spiritual reality. On the other hand, we do not view these as merely signs that we perform just to merely testify about something, but rather these are spiritual graces, these are spiritual realities that God actually works in our hearts, which are in turn symbolized in the water, with the bread, and with the wine, as well as symbolized by our actions with what we do with the water, bread, and wine. And we'll get into the deep specifics of that when we look particularly at baptism and the Lord's Supper and lessons to come. But speaking generally, so when you think about it this way, when you think of it in terms that, there, that this is a sacrament, you realize then that there are three parts then to a sacrament. First, there is the outward invisible sign. In the sacraments, there is some visible element in action which together signifies some spiritual benefit. This visible element in action, writes Calvin, quote, should not be merely arbitrary, but a natural analogy to suggest the related grace. But it must be added that a mere natural analogy does not constitute a sacrament. The analogy must be selected and consecrated by the expressed institution of God. In other words, Calvin's saying these visible elements and actions must agree with the preaching of the word and correspond with the spiritual reality they signify. So think of baptism, for example. Baptism is with water, which is ordinarily used for cleansing of the body, that we might be pointed to the cleansing of our minds and our hearts and our souls from the guilt and corruption of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as the Holy Spirit comes down from above and is poured out from above, so the water of baptism is poured out profusely upon the head of the one being baptized. Isaiah 44, verse 3, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In Proverbs 123, we read, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. In Joel 2.28, we read, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Of course, they quoted this there in Acts of Pentecost. This was fulfilled in Pentecost. And then in Titus 3, we read, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Furthermore, in baptism, the recipient of the sacrament remains still and unmoved. He is in no way assisting because in the, regenerate, in the regenerative work of the Spirit, the sinner is passive, and it is the Spirit that is active. Likewise, in the Lord's Supper, bread and wine are used as symbols. Just as bread nourishes 
our bodies and wine nourishes and gladdens our physical bodies. So Christ nourishes and gladdens his people with himself. The minister acting in Christ's name administers the bread and wine because Christ administers himself to his people by his spirit. The bread is broken as was his body on the cross and the wine is poured as his blood was shed on the cross. Each participant takes the sacrament to himself and he chews, swallows, and digests it for Christ is to be received by each of us by faith in him alone. And so spiritual nourishment, just like physical nourishment, requires personal and intelligent action on our part and not passivity. And we see those actions in the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so you see here as the Reformation Heritage Study Bible notes, points out, the elements of the Lord's Supper are signs of Christ's death for his people, which in conjunction with the word, stir and confirm their faith in him. There is no indication that Jesus intended them to see the bread as becoming or including his flesh physically, for he used the present tense, this is, while he stood physically before them prior to his death and resurrection, unquote. So again, in the sacraments, there is some visible element in action, which together signifies some spiritual benefit. And then that then leads me to the second element of a sacrament, that is the inward and spiritual grace that is signified in the visible sign. Beloved, there is in every sacrament a grace that is exhibited. And we must clearly distinguish these two, th two things, the visible sign versus the spiritual reality it signifies. Both the sign and the spiritual blessing are contained in a sacrament, but also the sign and the blessing it signifies are not so linked together that they cannot be distinguished. As Calvin writes, that even in the union itself, the matter must always be distinguished from the sign that we may not transfer to the one what belongs to the other. And then Augustine said that, quote, in the elect alone, the sacraments effect what they represent, unquote. And so although the sacraments are offered to all, the blessing they signified are given only to the elect who believe. By faith, we receive Christ by the visible sign. But without faith, the participant in the Lord's Supper receives the visible sign without Christ. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, for example, Calvin writes, For the Lord's morsel was poison to Judas, not because Judas received evil, but because an evil man evilly received a good thing. He who attains to the power of the sacrament is he who eats with the heart, not he who presses with the teeth, unquote. Beloved, you see a prime example of this with Israel. And I want to read this in full because there's just, there's a lot here. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. Again, listen to these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea 
and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, free from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What then do I imply? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Or are we stronger than he? Beloved, these folks were baptized, walking through the parted Red Sea. They partook of spiritual food and drink through the manna and the water that God provided for them in the wilderness. Here you have comparisons to the baptism and Lord's Supper of the New Covenant. And these people partook of these things. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased. Why? In one word, unbelief. Listen to Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. In Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12. Take care, brothers. He didn't say take care, pagans. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Beloved, this is why we distinguish between the visible sign versus the inward grace that is signified. Being baptized by water and eating bread and wine in the supper do not guarantee eternal life. If you're just going through the motions and you're not accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for your justification, for your sanctification, for eternal life, then understand something. Jesus is going to destroy you just as he did those professing believers who went through the motions in the wilderness. That's why Paul's telling you about it. He says it explicitly. They were an example, literally in the Greek, a type of us. Not a type of pagan, a type of us, professing believers in the visible church. Do not be like those people. Do not merely profess the faith and simply go through the motions, even partaking in the sacraments. Do not do these things in unbelief. Do not desire evil as they did, Paul wrote. These outward Christians, according to Psalm 106, did not consider God's wondrous works, verse 7. They did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, verse 7 again. They believed after being led through a parted sea, but then soon forgot God's works and did not wait for his counsel, verse 13. They put God to the test, verse 14. They became discontent and raised a voice against those whom God had placed in authority over them, verse 16. They worshiped the false god, verse 19. They forgot God, their savior, verse 21. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise, verse 24. They murmured in their tents. Remember my sermon? Contentment? These are professing believers murmuring in their tents and not obeying the voice of the Lord, verse 25. They provoked the Lord to anger with their evil deeds, verse 29. And God wiped out thousands of them. Paul says that 23,000 fell in a single day. Friends, do you think that you're beyond that? You think to yourself, oh, we're in the new covenant. We're in the gospel age. There's no real threat now. The gospel doesn't pose any threat to me. I go to church. I partake of the sacraments. Well, so did these people. Do you really embrace by faith that which the water, the bread, and the wine are pointing to you? Christ. Or are you just going through the external outward motions? 
That's why we make distinctions. And then third and lastly, there is in the sacrament a union of the visible sign in the spiritual grace. So you have a sign, you have that which is signified, and then you have a union that exists between the sign and the thing signified. The confession completes the answer to the larger catechism question 163 when it writes, there is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, which it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. And of course, without this sacramental union, there would be no sacraments. You see, the visible sign is just that. It's the part of the sacrament that we see and touch. We see the wine, we see the bread, we see the water. We touch them, we fill them. The spiritual grace that is signified is Christ. The promises of the new covenant and the benefits of salvation that were accomplished by him. And this sacramental union is the divinely ordained relation between the sign and the signified blessing. And this union depends entirely upon the institution of Christ. And because of this union, a sacramental language is possible in which the names of the signs and the spiritual blessings they signified are used interchangeably. And what does this do? This teaches us that in the sacrament, Christ really offers the spiritual blessing along with the visible sign to all who receive the sacrament with faith. So, for example, I know that, again, this is, you hear that, and you're like, what? <laughs> so let me give you some examples. Christ called the literal cup of the Last Supper the covenant in his blood. The cup is the new covenant. Now, obviously, this is not a literal statement. It is a sacramental way of saying things because of the nature of the sacramental union. We have several examples of this in the Bible. Christ is said to be our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5. The bread and wine are said to be the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 11. As I pointed out earlier, baptism is said to save us in 1 Peter. We just read in 1 Corinthians 10, Christ was said to be the rock from which we draw our spiritual drink. Forgiveness of sin is said to come with baptism in Acts 2. In the Lord's Supper, we fellowship in the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, as we just read. Romans 6 says that we have been buried with him through baptism into death. And Colossians 2 speaks of our baptism and the work of the Holy Spirit. It signifies as, quote, a circumcision made without hands. All of these examples presuppose a sacramental union of the sign with what it signifies. And the point they are making is that the sacraments closely coupled to what they signify by divine institution represent, seal, and convey what they signify to those who receive them in faith. Christ is literally not the Passover lamb, nor is he literally a rock or something we drink with our mouths. The bread and wine are literally not his physical body and blood, nor does the water of baptism have a literal saving and forgiving power in it. It's just water. 
But the Bible uses this sacramental way of speaking because these sacraments really do represent, signify, seal, and apply Christ and the benefits of redemption to all who receive them by faith. And in the sacraments, Christ really does offer himself and these blessings to all who believe. This mode of speaking is more common in the Bible than one might think. Again, for example, when Moses describes the glory cloud leading the children of Israel on their journey, he does not just simply say the cloud went before them, but he says the Lord went before them. Well, is the Lord the cloud? Of course not. The cloud was the visualization and pledge of the Lord's presence with his people. He was literally not in the cloud or was the cloud, but sacramentally speaking, it was a sign of his presence. Also, when the glory cloud descended upon the tabernacles, we read in Exodus 34.5, it says that the Lord descended. Furthermore, when the Ark of the Covenant at the blast of the trumpets was taken up to the temple, the writer says God has gone up with a shout. Psalm 47. And then another example in John 1, verse 32, when Jesus is baptized, it says the dove, representing the Holy Spirit, is said to be the Spirit himself descending from heaven upon Christ. This is why Calvin writes, the name of the thing signified is aptly transferred to the sign. And beloved, it is the sacramental union that makes a sacrament, a sacrament, and a means of grace. If you remove that sacramental union aspect of this, then the sacraments are destroyed. If that divinely ordained union is removed, and you completely mix the sign with the things that are signified, then the water literally is the Holy Spirit, and the bread and wine are literally Christ's body and blood, which is absurd. And if this union is removed and the sign and the spiritual blessings are totally separated, the visible sacraments are empty, unnecessary, and useless. Take away either the thing signified or the relation of the sign to what it signifies, and we lose the sacrament. If you mix the sign and that which it signifies, you destroy the union between them, and you lose the sacrament. If you convert the one into the other, and the sacrament is if you convert convert the one into the other. The sacrament is also lost because the relation between them vanishes. You see clearly with your own eyes that the sign and the grace are not locally joined. That is, they are not in the same place. You see water in the bowl. They're the baptism. You see bread and wine on the table. Christ is neither in the bowl nor is he on the table. He's in heaven. And so you, you see that they're not joined locally or physically. The water does not literally touch the Holy Spirit, and the bread and wine do not literally touch Christ. Neither are they visibly joined. For although the water, bread, and wine are visible to the eye, Christ is not. If Christ and the signs were locally, physically, and visibly joined, then why would you even need the water and bread and wine to start with, if that's where he is? Therefore, we should be able to see that this sacramental union is a spiritual union and is a great mystery. It's not possible to show to the eye how the two are joined together. 
To understand this secret and spiritual union, our minds must be enlightened with a heavenly sight, according to the word of God. And so then this sacramental union consists of two things. First, there must be a similarity and analogy between the sign and the grace signified, and this likeness must be easily perceived. For example, think of how bread is able to nourish your body for this earthly and temporal life. So the flesh of Christ, signified by bread, is able to nourish both body and soul to everlasting life. That's what we say every week. And then second, there must be a continual and mutual concurrence of the sign and the grace signified. The sign and the grace signified are offered together and received together at the same time. The sign with the mouth and grace with faith. But beware of conflating them or of turning one into the other. And as Joe Moorcraft points out, lastly, because of this spiritual union between the sign and the thing signified, there are some inferences we can make regarding the fact that there are two givers, there are two gifts, there are two receiving instruments, and there are two receivers. First, in the sacrament, there are two givers. The water of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper are given to us by the minister of the gospel. The spiritual blessing that is signified in the sign is given to us by our Lord. The minister gives the earthly thing. Christ Jesus, the mediator, gives us the heavenly thing that is signified. And so do not think that you will receive the spirit from the hands of man. You will receive him from the hands of Christ and him alone. Therefore, you ought always to pray that the Lord may water your hearts by his spirit as he waters your ears by the hearing of the word. Secondly, just as there are two givers, there are two gifts. Christ, who is the heavenly thing, is offered and given to you by an inward, secret, and spiritual action, which is not subject to the outward eye. The sign, again, is offered and given in an outward action in a corporal, invisible way. And thirdly, there are two receiving instruments. In the Lord's Supper, for example, the instrument that receives the sign is the mouth. But the grace signified, which is Christ, is never offered through our mouths. The Bible is emphatic from beginning to end that there is no other way of receiving Christ but by faith alone. And lastly, there are two receivers. Bruce writes, you may... Be quite sure that if you are faithful, Christ is as busy working inwardly in your soul as the minister is working outwardly in regard to your body. See how busy the minister is in breaking the bread, in pouring out the wine, and giving the bread and wine to you. Christ is just as busy in breaking his own body unto you and in giving you the juice of his own blood in a spiritual and invisible way. Preserve this distinction then, and you, may be, and you may assure yourself that by faith, Christ is as fully occupied with your soul in nourishing it as the minister is outwardly with your body. Keep this, and you have the whole sacrament. Well, beloved, this is the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit in these ordinances that we preserve the teaching of in our use of the word sacrament. 
Yet there are those that use that word that have abused and twisted what a sacrament is. I think, for example, the Roman Catholics. But, beloved, it would be silly for us to reject the use of a perfectly good word just because some people have distorted it. If you compare what we actually teach to what the Roman Catholics teach, it's not the same thing. And so our use of the word sacrament does not make us Roman Catholic, as some like to claim. Rather, what it does, when biblically and properly understood, makes us good disciples of Christ and of his word. There's far more going on with baptism and the Lord's Supper than just a commemorative act done by man. And as we are about to partake in the Lord's Supper, Pastor JP is going to remind us of that. But be thinking upon these things. Consider them. Weigh them carefully. Beloved, it is not enough to experience the external benefits of the visible church, which is to say it's not enough to just go through the motions. And not only is it not enough, but as we've read, it will actually further condemn you and bring upon your life God's wrath to the uttermost, as it did with the Israelites. There must be an experiential application of God's grace in your soul. That's why we're here. That's the purpose, point of the visible church and of these external signs. That's what they're pointing you to. And so do you believe? Do you believe to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God, recognizing God's authority himself speaking within? Do you yield obedience to the commands? Do you tremble at his threatenings? Do you embrace the promises of God for this life and for the life to come? And do you accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone for your justification, for your sanctification, and eternal life? Beloved, don't just go through the motions and thus provoke God's anger. Ponder these things and feed upon him by faith. Let's pray.